0: Well, good morning, PAC. Good morning. Wow, that's good to hear. Good to be with you. Uh, if For no other reason, just to say thank you for your generosity to support local and global outreach. Uh, you've been very generous to Kama and our various relief efforts around the world and supporting the Great Commission Fund. I'll mention a little bit about that later. <coughs> You know, uh, I'm just inserting this here. When you gave that little gift card to allow that family to uh, purchase the um, protein of their choice or even with the the gifts to come in and choose them, you have elevated their sense of human dignity and affirmed them by giving them choice. You maybe don't understand how powerful that is. Some agencies just kind of dump things on people, you know, open the back of the truck, out it goes, and they drive away. But you are personally giving things to people and giving them the dignity of choice. So, well done, well done. The passage this morning that I'm going to focus on is in Matthew 9, 36 through 38. Matthew 9, 36 to 38. <coughs> in seeing the multitudes, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This verse answers the question in part, why do we do what we do? But it also has been the key verse in my sense of calling to serve Christ. I remember as a college student sitting in the front row over to the side in a real small little Alliance Church in Minnesota, and the uh, international worker from the Philippines was preaching on this passage, and at the end, he challenged people to stand who sensed a call from God, and I stood. And I looked around and said, I am the only one standing, but I stood And uh, God launched me from that point forward. That summer before that, it was in the fall, that summer I had been in Thailand as a college student working on the Thai-Lao border, so the Mekong River kind of divides those two countries. (coughs) And I worked with Kama Services and two other young men, and we were helping Hmong refugees who had just come across the river the night before. So the three of us provided uh, food and hygiene kits and mats and... And first aid, so um, since I had taken advanced first aid the semester before, I was the medic. And um, I cleaned a lot of wounds that had been infected in the days, months, and weeks they'd been hiding in the jungle from the communist soldiers. So I, I couldn't speak Lao, I couldn't speak Hmong, but I could dress wounds. And as I went back to that river, different police stations, you know every week we went a number of times i would hear things through a translator i would see things that just stirred an emotion so deep within me and i was just overcome i mean i just it was so powerful i could hardly stand it some days and all, but all i could do is dress wounds so i did what i could god moved me with compassion nancy and i were dating at the time she was in eastern europe smuggling Bibles into former Soviet bloc countries, our little God smuggler over there. And I was just doing some mundane stuff on the, in Thailand and the border. But um, we got married a year later. We went to Canada. I speak a little Canadian, if you'd like to hear some. Uh, for five years, and uh, then we went to Thailand. We were there for seven. Uh, and then we went back to the United States, <coughs> excuse me, where I worked as a regional leader for 15 years. So in total, you know, we were away from our families in in Minnesota for 27 years. That's a long time to be away from family, friends, and and extended family. And we worked hard at keeping in touch, you know, with our immediate family and all, but we kind of lost touch with a lot of our uh, aunts and uncles and first and second cousins and all those people. We did move back eventually. And we reconnected. You know, we started going to the birthday parties and to the funerals and to the weddings and and to the famous Lusky Christmas party. So that's my mother's maiden name. I come from a large Irish Catholic clan. And the first Saturday of every, every December, we all rent a hall, we meet together, and uh, it's quite an interesting gathering. So I don't know about you. I'll pick on myself. But in a large family, you know, you're going to have... You know, just a lot of normal folks. And you're going to have a few that are co- not quite in the normal category, the little kooky. Uh, like, anyhow, well, some of you have those people, too, that, you know, that Uncle Fritz who just, like, Fritz, if you don't stop talking, you know, I don't know what I'm... I'm just going to walk away because you can't seem to stop. So, but, um, but it was great. It was worth it. You know, we're family and all stuff. Well, PAC, I thought I'd help you get reacquainted with your uh, family of the Christian Missionary Alliance, CMA, and your global family. So when you're in a locale, sometimes you kind of forget who's in the rest of the family. So I'm gonna focus on your aunts and uncles in this first part here. The CMA sent their first workers to Congo 137 years ago, a hard place. And I think almost all those people that first went died there within their first term. But we kept sending people to the hard places of the world. Today, there are over 700 workers in 70 nations. And why did we do this? To bring gospel access for and from all people. You see, today there are people in the world who do not have gospel access. For political reasons or religious reasons or ethno-linguistic reasons, they don't have the gospel. Someone needs to go to them. But they're also nations where the gospel penetrated many, many years ago, and they've got growing churches, thriving, healthy places. And thank you so much for that water. Um, Yeah, you can tell I'm struggling a little. And those churches are sending out workers, and they're doing things like you're doing in your community and reaching out. How could we help increase their capacity to do what they do locally and join the global force? So the gospel access for and from all people. But to prove, and to do that, uh, I want you to understand the, the driving motivation there. All of Jesus for all the world. That's a powerful statement. You could think on that one for quite a while. All of Jesus, for all the world, takes all of us. We are the body of Christ. The gospel is most clearly proclaimed and seen through diversity and seen through biblical holism, addressing those things. So all of Jesus, for all the world, takes all of us. And what do we do to achieve that? Three things. We serve communities. You do this well. If you're wondering what that looks like, look at yourselves. That's what serving communities looks like. Every community is different. Poverty looks different in every place, but we serve communities. We multiply church networks. You're planting churches, and we encourage other churches to do that as well, to multiply themselves, and you develop people. We want to start with people where they're at and move them forward in their faith, develop them professionally, so we're committed to developing people. Again, 700 workers, 70 nations, but we're, we're not all doing the same thing. There's some unique diversity within us. We have four structures, four distinct structures, and you see the four logos up there. Let me explain just a little bit about them. Now, I know there's four, and you've had three representatives this fall from three (coughs) of the different structures. I represent the fourth. Marketplace ministries, they facilitate professionals who bring their expertise to a community to disciple those around them. About 170 people today and then in vision, they identify and develop missional leaders through short-term mission opportunities. Thule and Tang Tao are an example of that. About 62 workers today. Access, the largest group, 400 and some workers. And they are focused on proclaiming the gospel and multiplying those networks of churches. They are church planters. And then comma, about 60 workers in 16 countries our focus is addressing poverty, those who are vulnerable, and helping those who have been devastated by a major disaster. So those are the four. Again, 700 people. We don't all do the same thing. Kama started about 50 years ago at the end of the Vietnam War. Thousands of refugees were fleeing the country in boats, over land, any way that they could leave. And... They formed in groups, informal settlements. Eventually, the UN put them in large camps in Thailand, and we sent dozens and dozens of people to those camps who worked with them. That became common services. A lot of them were medical, some were ESL, opium detox, all kinds of things. That was about 50 years ago. We have broadened and grown in our scope. Our major focus is community development. But today, we continue to be involved in serving those devastated by a disaster. So a community of individuals and churches have formed together. We're seeking to have an impact on this world for Christ together. And why does Kama do what we do? Well, we're just so committed to seeing lives transformed by Christ. The world is broken, and only the gospel can really transform people's lives. And solve and address these issues. We're also committed to restoring communities. After a major disaster, the infrastructure is destroyed, homes are destroyed, livelihoods are destroyed. It needs to be restored. So we're committed to that restoration process, and it is a long process. To achieve these two outcomes, there's two things that we do. Relief, short-term in nature, food, water, tarps, that type of thing, and then development. So we try to create a bridge through relationships to move into long-term development, which is a lot about relationships and sustainability and restoring people and their livelihoods and their sense of normal again. So we do relief and we're involved in development. And to do that, we work in two ways. Partnership, like with PAC, we partner with you in Haiti and South Asia, but also we work in people development. We partner with local churches, local leaders, local NGOs, local government officials, and we partner internationally with other agencies, with Alliance churches across the US, and with the Alliance World Fellowship. In fact, it is not an overstatement to say that we don't accomplish anything of significance without partnership, it's how we work. But we're also committed to people development. I think that's our actual sweet spot. We are so committed to people, we start with them, pre Christian or Christian. We work with them through their own growth in faith, but we work with them in terms of learning how to read, gaining job skills, addressing health issues, becoming a productive part of their community. Whatever their need is, we work on their development long term, and it produces really good fruit. Some exciting stories I can tell you. So, lives transformed, communities restored. Relief, development, partnership, and people development. In a nutshell, that's who Kama is. When people see the gospel demonstrated by the things that you do, the Thanksgiving meal, the Christmas gifts, and then when they hear the gospel clearly spoken by you in just normal English or whatever language is their language, and they respond in faith, lives are transformed. They become agents of change in their world taking the gospel to others. It's really remarkable, very rewarding, long, slow process. So this year, this is your family, PAC, the 700 workers around the world, but that's just your aunts and uncles. Let me introduce you to your first, second, and third cousins, the Alliance World Fellowship. Formed in 1975, it's grown to over six million people, 88 countries, they have 22,000 churches, 2,000 of their own workers sent out from those countries. That's a lot of first cousins. You're going to have a hard time finding a place to meet for Christmas, but it is a wonderful family, a wonderful family. I was just with the leadership of of these national churches in Guayaquil, Ecuador, in October for their quadrennial meeting. And as I sat and listened to the stories of their impact, of their sacrifice, of their service, I was moved to tears on more than than one occasion. Uh, One particular brother sharing from the Middle East who came from uh, the majority religion in that area and just sharing of how he'd come to faith and the difficulties even in relating to Christians. And there was a sense of, forgive us for how we have treated you. I mean, such unity and commitment to Jesus It's really a wonderful group of people, and you're part of that. So I want to encourage you with that, that you're part of something a lot bigger than what you just see here. Being involved in bringing gospel access for and from all people requires motivation. I mean, you may start just out of emotion, but you've gotta have something strong and sustainable and clearly understood. You need a motivation that will endure. Why is that? Because it's hard. It's, just, it's harder than you could ever imagine, and it takes longer than you would ever think. We need a sustained motivation. That motivation can come from Matthew nine thirty six through 38. He saw the multitudes, he felt compassion for them. He asked the disciples to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send more help, more workers. But let me give you a little bit about the context of Matthew chapter 9 that I'm focusing on here this morning. We read about Jesus healing, forgiving a man who'd been paralyzed, a lot of controversy over that one. Then he called Matthew to follow him, Matthew, Levi. Then Jesus had some really tricky questions about fasting that he dealt with that left people scratching their heads. Later, he raised a girl from the dead. Whoa. I mean, pause. He raised a girl from the dead. He healed a woman who'd been chronically ill, then he healed two blind men, he cast a demon out of a man who'd been unable to speak. So to help us understand that what was Jesus' ministry normally like? Is this like normal? It was normal. The author of Matthew, he writes this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. That was what Jesus did, his normal day. Quite a day. That brings us to the passage. So here are the crowds. Now remember, these people are hearing of the healings, or they have seen a healing, and the crowds just get bigger and bigger and bigger. They are fascinated for all kinds of reasons and want to come. So there's a large crowd there, and Jesus looks out in that crowd, and he doesn't just glance at the crowd to see, "Wow, that's a large group of people." or notice something about the crowd, he looks at the crowd and he knows who they are individually. And he knows what their lives are like and what they face. And he gives us some really important descriptors of what he sees. Jesus saw them. So as I focus on that, I want you to understand, I want you to think about three things. He saw them. He felt compassion for them, and he asked the disciples to pray that the Lord of the Harvest would send help. He saw, he felt, and he said, "Send help." So think about those three things with me. What did Jesus see? He looked deeply into them, and he saw them. You know, that's a choice. That's a choice that I've had to make a different time. I travel different parts of the world and Boyd and Donna and I we were in Thailand and you see situations all the time and you know some of them are pretty desperate and it gets it actually gets pretty overwhelming you can just kind of walk by and not really notice that person on the street or that situation in a village it is overwhelming but Jesus looked at them and he saw them he saw that they were harassed and helpless from one translation or distressed and downcast So that word is used as someone who's intoxicated or inebriated, way too much to drink. So much so, if they stumbled and fell, there they are on the ground, and they're so weighed down, they literally can't pick themselves up off the floor. And there they stay. It's a word picture, the weight of life, the brokenness of their lives, the difficulties, the vulnerabilities that they faced. They were weighed down. Moreover, Jesus said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're not an intelligent animal. They do things to endanger themselves often. So they will wander away into danger. They'll walk right into it, sometimes fall over, fall over, unable to get back up. And the shepherd keeps them out of trouble, keeps them safe from trouble, rescues them when they're in trouble. And that's who Jesus is describing. These people are vulnerable, and they're weighed down. And to make matters worse, the very people, the very people who should have helped them, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the rulers of the law, actually added to their burdens, made them feel even more weighed down, and did not lift them up. That's who Jesus saw. And what did he feel? He felt compassion. Compassion is a very deep emotion. It it wells up within you. It's in response to something you see. It's what I felt on that, there at the Mekong River, it's a, it, and when you see people that are that vulnerable and overwhelmed, you feel compassion. And compassion demands a response. But think about Jesus, his everyday experience of healing people, casting out demons, of teaching, of listening, people crowding around him. Exhausting, really, exhausting. Emotionally, physically. And here he is, one, one more big crowd of people. It's been a tough year or two. COVID, the pandemic has demanded everything we had to give and more. And we are tired. We are exhausted. It has been a long stretch of time. The losses have weighed us down and it is hard. And I think we understand a little bit of what Jesus felt that day. Cumulatively, we have felt just emptied of all that we had to give. And our capacity in some ways to empathize and show compassion has diminished somewhat. And that's actually quite normal. But the world is still broken and people are still vulnerable. The price that Jesus paid to show compassion, to actually see them and show compassion, was a high price. Because let's just say that he felt like maybe the tank was half full emotionally. By seeing who they were and showing compassion, He decided to give it all that day and minister to those people. But what did he do in response? Okay, so you've got a lot of people there in great need. He didn't feed them. He didn't heal them. And he didn't teach them. He just said to the disciples, so they're right around him, he turns to them and he says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers, workers into the harvest. That's what he did. He said... We need help. Why? Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are so few. The harvest is really plentiful, but the workers are so few. So would you ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest? He saw them. He felt compassion for them. He sought more help for them. We're going to show a short video clip of what happens after a major disaster when you see people in such great need and so vulnerable.
1: Families had lost everything, everything that they had
2: invested in was gone. It was really, really overwhelming to see so much destruction, to see families who didn't even know what to do, what the next step was.
1: When you come into a
2: situation like this, uh, the people need everything. So where do you start? Our first step is always going to survey a location. We keep our eyes open for other banners to see if other relief workers have been there, to see if they have any other new supplies that have been distributed, because we're looking for the least helped areas.
1: As we identified those areas that needed the help the most, then we started uh, sharing the supplies that we had, food and water and tarps so that they would uh, have
2: some shelter. It's been very exciting to be working alongside Kama workers here on the ground as well as local North Lombok Sasak. We have three religions working side by side and we feel like this is an example to those around us that um, religions can work together and have peace. This has gone very smoothly we have built incredible relationships, and uh, it has been—it's been a great operation. We are quite confident we're some of the only believers that these people have lived amongst. One of the most moving experiences that I had here was uh,
1: when one of the people that we have gotten to know came and uh, put his arms around me, and for several minutes just cried uncontrollably thanking us for what we had done. Of course, that makes one feel good, but more important than that is that we are doing what our Lord told us to do, to go out and feed the hungry, clothe the naked, look after the sick, invite the stranger in and help those. And when we do it to those that uh, need it the most, we're doing it unto him.
2: I'd like to say a, a deep thank you to everyone Um, here in Indonesia as well as overseas who have faithfully prayed for us. But we're also very thankful for uh, the
1: Dutch support that we've received, the Canadian support, the American support so that we could uh, be a part of helping these people that are in such a serious situation. So thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. I touch my heart as the Indonesians do. God's peace be upon you.
0: About a decade earlier, in this island of Lombok, which is just north of Bali, with more than a decade, they basically ran the Christians away and off the island. And so, after all this extensive exp- uh, of work and uh, expression of the love of God, Christians are now welcomed back. You know, what a change of heart. And here's a really cool story that's not part of the video, that the national church, the CMA church there, formed their own relief and development agency, came up And the workforce that really achieved that in that video were young people from churches who went there on short-term trips and worked alongside people on that island. A wonderful illustration of response. They assessed the damage. They looked for those in greatest need. They purchased distributed you know, food, water, tarps, and tools, and they chose to partner broadly in order to achieve the greatest impact after that earthquake. The gospel was clearly seen by what they did, but over time, it was understood by what they said. When you work in a disaster, you have the opportunity to do some immediate help for a family. And before you leave that day to to say to them, may I pray for you? Well, who says no to prayer? These are very spiritual people in Indonesia. We prayed for many people. Over time, they said, well, tell me, you know, who are you and why are you here? I'm a follower of Isa, follower of Jesus. And the love of the Father motivates me as he has loved me. I want to show you that same love. That leads to another conversation. So the Gospel is being explained one conversation at a time to people who maybe had never met a Christian before or heard the Gospel. A major crisis like this, you know, brings the, the, the video crews and major news outlets, uh, and all the world becomes aware of it. But you know there are millions of people around the world who suffer today in extreme poverty, and we know nothing of them. We don't know where they live, we don't know their names, we don't know their situation. And Kumafi is a woman like one of those. She lives in a large city in West Africa. She begs every day to support her three children. One day, one of our staff members was buying fruit at a stand near her home. And as she was buying the fruit, she heard three little kids off to the side speaking in Bambara, a language that she had learned from uh, her service in a previous country. Well, that got her interested, you know, to, to talk to the children. Her mother was there. They started going back and forth. And Kumafi felt safe with her and confided in her and said, I beg every day to provide for my three kids. There's no dignity in it. I'm spat on, and rarely a day goes by that I'm not propositioned to sell my body. Well, as they sat there and talked that day, she learned more about her story that Kumafi's husband had died. She's a widow. Her family couldn't afford to keep her, so they sent her to this city of two million where an uncle was supposed to care for her. He did not. And like many women in West Africa, she had no education, no job skills, no way to support herself and her three kids, so she begs every day. Our staff member wrote this. She said... I have, I have experienced the extreme generosity of the desperately poor in these places. Desperately poor. Kumafi is one of the people who needs to be described as living in extreme poverty. Extreme poverty means you live on less than $1.90 a day. Now, we think of poverty primarily in terms of money and I just used a very specific reference, but it's a lot more than a lack of money. The World Bank did a study of 20,000 people living in extreme poverty, and they summarized it down into a short paragraph that I wanna read for you. What is it to live in extreme poverty? Poverty is hunger. Poverty is lack of shelter. It's being sick, not being able to see a doctor. It's not having access to school, not knowing how to read. Poverty is not having a job, fear for the future, living one day at a time. Poverty is losing a child to illness because of unclean water. Poverty is powerlessness and a lack of representation and freedom. That's poverty, extreme poverty. Did you know in the last year, over 30 million more people Moved into extreme poverty because of COVID. So many of them are day laborers. You don't work, you don't eat. Extreme poverty. Kumafi and our staff member developed a friendship. She invited her over for a meal to have a special dish from the country that they, are, they had both lived in because she remembered how much our staff member liked that dish. And so here she is, the guest of honor, in this little shack that she had assembled to keep the elements off her kids. She gave her the seat of honor, a plastic bucket. She flipped over so she could sit on it. And she said, as I sat there eating that, I could hardly swallow for just the tears coming down my face and in my throat. And for the smell of beetles in the rice, that might do it to you. (laughs) She said, when I went home that day and I told my husband about what I had seen and experienced, I just wept. I just wept for the injustice that Kumafi and her children suffer under. She felt compassion. And compassion is a, an emotion that moves you to action. And so what did she do? Well, she gathered together some other IWs with various kinds of expertise in that city. And they did an assessment of the kids in terms of nutrition they identified where they were at. They, they implemented a nutrition program that lasted about six months, was very successful, engaged the entire community and the, and the moms and dads. Then they realized there's a lot more to be done here. So they talked with the village chief and gathered people together to say, what else could we do? And they identify that their kids get to about fourth or fifth grade, and they cannot pass a key exam to get into that next level of school. Because if they were to get into that next level of school, it's very likely that once they would finish high school, get a much better job, be able to support their families. So they started a tutoring program, after-school tutoring program. A local church gave us the space for it, and uh, every day after school, meeting with the kids. And back in August, just a few months ago, Uh, They had all the government exams. Over 90% of the kids passed the exam. Yeah. And round two started a couple of weeks later. They had a big ceremony to kick it off. You know, one child at a time being impacted. The gospel is being lived out and being shared in a very close and personal way. I visited that place just back in April. I met the village chief in this slum community, at the edge of this big city, and he loves us. I don't think he can figure out who we are or why we're there. I mean, he knows we're Jesus followers, but why are you doing all this for our kids? And the gospel goes forward. The gospel goes forward. Well, compassion is powerful. It leads us to do things. It leads us to action. So that brings me to an invitation I want to lay before you this morning. It's very simple. Choose to be like Jesus. Choose to see people, really see them. Choose to allow compassion to well up in your soul, and then act on what the Lord leads you to do. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus in seeing your family. Now, I have a big extended family, Maybe you come from an extended family and there are people in your family you just love and there are people in your family that you love but you really don't like. They frustrate you. Would you ask the Lord to help you see your family differently the way he does, to understand them more, that you might feel compassion for them rather than frustration? See your own community. I am so thrilled with the things that you're doing here. Really, like, whoa, you guys, you're doing well. In the story of the Afghan family of three that's coming, the, the meals that you just pulled together, and the Christmas gifts, and many other things that you're doing. You know, it's. I went on your website, so we'll just let's just have a little moment to uh, celebrate some things. Providing for the emotional needs of others through counseling. It's huge. Helping single parents, refugees with furniture, hearts and home. He Cares, We Care, The Pantry, Cards Ministry, Serving the Sick, all these things that you have done and more, there's things that probably aren't on your website that some of you are involved in. Well done, you're serving your community. And God's giving you a heart for them to see them and their needs. But your nation, our nation is in great need. Polarized, divided, yet there are people who suffer quietly. There are vulnerable people in our country. May God give us a heart for them, maybe be able to see them, respond to them in your world. Short-term ministry team is a big part of PAC. COVID brought that to a close for a year, but I know you're going to eventually ramp it back up. What a great opportunity for you to serve, but also for God to break your heart with the things that break his. When you go to a place when you're really out of your comfort zone. I know that you serve those who serve overseas. Thank you for that support. You're giving to Kama. $40,000 is no small amount. And through our local partners, we have seen God take a small amount of money and just multiply it and impact on people. It's really remarkable. Like in Haiti, South Asia. And then you're giving to the Great Commission Fund. $1.3 million over the past five years. Really, really remarkable. So, ask the Lord to help you see... Here's the thing, you have to choose, you have to choose to see. And I kinda confessed earlier that I get to places and peoples, I don't want to see anymore, frankly. Some days I don't wanna look at the news. It's just like, this is just too overwhelming. I need the grace of God just to have the courage to okay, I'm gonna look again, and I'm gonna see. Choose to see, choose to feel. It's a powerful emotion, compassion, wells up within us, and it's an awkward emotion. Um, I don't know your backgrounds, you know, I grew up in Minnesota, uh, and maybe you know Minnesota, maybe you don't, but, you know, we're rather reserved emotionally. We're not big, if you're a a male from Minnesota, you probably have maybe five words in your whole vocabulary that could talk about emotion. Uh, So we're just pretty reserved, folks. Compassion just kind of breaks all the boundaries. It just pushes you right out of your comfort zone to do things you thought you would never do or to say things you thought you would never say. It's an awkward emotion. It's a powerful emotion. But I mentioned earlier that in the past year or so, our, our capacity to show that has been diminished. We need to ask the Lord to bring greater healing to our own souls that we might bring healing to the lives of others, to refill the reservoir of caring, that we could show care for other people. He can restore, and he will, and he can renew that we might be agents of change. And ask for help, so choose to see, allow the emotions to well up, and then ask for help. So I'm not asking you to do anything. Well, I kind of am. I'm asking you to pray, especially to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into the harvest field. That's really the crux of the matter. That's why I'm here today. So pray in light of what you've seen, what you've felt. You know, there are a few situations in the world that I've shared with PAC and and a few other churches, like in Mali, West Africa. It's not a large country, but it's one of the most impoverished countries in the world. Like it's near the top of the list of impoverished countries in the UN list. And there's a... There's a jihadist movement growing, and as they move from north to south, village after village, burned out, violent attacks, and so first hundreds, and then thousands of people fleeing their homes toward the capital, and here they are in these camps with nothing. I mean, they had to leave. They literally had to run out of their villages. Couldn't take, you know, pots and pans and all those things with you. You just ran. And there they are. And there's a small group of believers ministering to them. They're very overworked and under resourced, and they need help. And I'm asking you to pray the Lord to send someone to help in Mali. In South Asia, there's a camp of a million people stuck in great need, and very few people working there. Would you pray the Lord of the harvest would send out workers? So I'm asking you to pray. Now, when you pray, I'm asking you to really allow the Holy Spirit to tap into all that He's been speaking to you about and to pray with that emotion that you have. So, I'm giving you a warning here. I'm going to step outside of my Minnesota comfort zone. Okay. You know the closed off part here? So, from the things that I've seen and felt, here's what I pray sometimes. This might get a little loud. God, where are you? Do you not see these people suffering? Do you not care? They are dying. They are starving. And no one gives a rip. Do you ever feel like that? I do. I feel the emotion is overwhelming. I feel anger. I feel all kinds of things. Who should you talk to about that? God is your best person to talk to about that. Would you pray? Serious, would you commit to praying that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers out into the harvest field, wherever that need is? Let's close with just a short prayer and ask him to do that. Heavenly Father, you who made us for your glory to advance your kingdom, would you raise up and send out workers into the harvest field, to the places of greatest need that they might see and hear the good news about Jesus Christ and be reconciled to you. We pray in his name, amen.